There's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Well, wow, finally, finally happened. Janet Yellen raised interest rates this week. And she raised them a quarter of a point, which was 100% of what the economists and the market were expecting. So nothing new, nothing groundbreaking. And I told you before, I expected the interest rate to be a quarter of a point. Also, I expected it to happen in uh, December like it did. It was a unanimous decision this time, which is kind of interesting. But I also said the real key, the, the real valid, useful information will be the narrative around the rate increase. Now, the expectation going forward prior to Janet Yellen raising rates this week was that next year, 2017, the year after 2018, there would be roughly two rate increases of 25 basis points or a fourth of 1% each. Well, the narrative this week was there's probably going to be three. Now, that can change at a moment's notice. It's all based on economic indicators that uh, the FOMC look at and make a decision as to what they think is happening in the economy. The bottom line is that they felt comfortable raising rates now because Unemployment numbers are down to 4.6%. And the economy is recovering. It's growing. Not at a very fast clip, but it is growing. And inflation is one of their primary concerns. Now, the the key here is the the Fed is walking a a very fine line when it comes to monetary policy. And the key to the jobs market is that is a huge indicator of inflationary actions. So as more people become employed, fewer people are unemployed, employers have to compete for employees, thereby raising wages and raising the cost of producing their goods and ultimately raising the price of the finished product. So the unemployment numbers are very, very important. Now, you and I both know numbers are cooked. We know that. You know that. There's roughly 95 million people that are eligible to be in the workforce that are not counted part of the workforce. But we go by the information that the Federal Reserve has, and we try to establish trends. And the trend is employment is tightening up. I've talked to several employers, and it's hard to hire good people. Good people. Now, the definition of a good person, 
to hire is simply one that is willing to do the job that you've hired them to do. Now, that sounds basic, sounds logical, but it's surprising to me how many people get hired and have really no intention of doing the job they were hired to do or do it so poorly that they get fired. That is more the norm than the exception anymore. I I talked to a company the other day that hired some people and uh, in unloading product out of the the, uh, trailer, it was a landscaping business, the guy couldn't do it because he couldn't put down his cell phone. He tried to do it one-handed and hang on to the cell phone and look at texts and email and that kind of crap while he was working. The employer told me, he said, I told him several times, several times, put the phone down while you're working, and he wouldn't do it. So he got fired. And, and you know that employee thinks it was unjust. But these people cannot do the work. They can't be trusted to do the work. So the jobs market is getting tighter, partially because more people are becoming employed, but partially because more good people are being employed and less good people are available. That will drive up wages, which ultimately drives inflation through everything. So interest rates are designed or... Monetary policy of the Fed, theoretically, is designed to quell that. Technically, by raising interest rates, they're they're giving a signal to the economy that enough people are employed. You can slow down the hiring. Probably wouldn't hurt if more people were unemployed, if the unemployment rate was higher. Probably wouldn't hurt. We don't want inflation to get out of hand. Once you get the inflation genie out of the bottle... Very hard to put them back in. So it was a big deal this week. Interest rates going up, not so much because interest rates went up, but as much as the commentary around future expectations. The market does not like uncertainty. And when you give it an indication that you're going to raise interest rates three times next year instead of two, um, that has an impact. That has an impact. Now, as interest rates go up, several things happen. Not the least of which, the value of existing bonds go down. And the reason the value of existing bonds goes down is we have to have on the secondary market an interest rate parity between old existing bonds and new issue bonds. So if a bond is currently paying 4%, say, and interest rates go up a quarter of a point, so a new bond issued will get four and a quarter instead of four, the underlying price of that 4% bond has to go down on the secondary market so that the purchaser of that bond gets the equivalent of four and a quarter versus four. It's kind of like a teeter-totter. Remember when we were kids, we had teeter-totters? I don't know if they have them in playgrounds anymore. They're probably way too dangerous for kids. They might 
might break a nail or something. I don't know. But if you look at it from a teeter-totter standpoint with interest rates on one side and the value of the bond on the other, as interest rates go up, the value of the bond goes down. The longer the maturity of the bond, the further it will go down. Because at maturity, a bond reaches full par value. So it does reach equilibrium eventually. But raising interest rates will drive the bond market down. We've seen that all across the board from government securities since the rate increase to corporate bonds to everything. It will also affect mortgage rates because now the cost of funds between banks and between banks and the Fed just went up 25 basis points. Well, banks are like any other business. They're not going to going to absorb an increase in cost they're going to pass it on to you and me so interest rates on mortgages car loans boat loans any type of credit out there just got a little bit more expensive because of the rate increase this last week ripple effect of that will be everything that people buy with that borrowed money so homes Home prices may come down or the number of homes sold may slow down. Cars, same way. If interest rate goes up on cars, people will buy fewer cars. So everything that can be bought on credit will be affected by an interest rate increase. Now, I'm old enough to remember 1980 when prime rate was 21% or something when Reagan came in office. Fixed mortgage rates were in the 13, 14% range for 30 year fixed. That's if you had 20, 30, up to 50% down payment. We didn't really have much in the way of variable rates back then. So raising interest rates a fourth of 1% to 75 basis points really doesn't mean a lot to me doesn't affect me very much because I have a long memory when it comes to monetary policy and interest rates. You remember the mid-80s? I mean, interest rates were high. We could get CDs back then for 13, 14, 15% on a CD. Today, they're virtually nothing, one, maybe 2% on a CD. So interest rates going up are a big, big deal. And the Federal Reserve, with Janet Yellen as chairman, has to feel comfortable that the economy can handle an increase in interest rates. In other words, that the economy can absorb an increase in interest rates without adversely affecting it, without slowing it down very much. They're just... They're just kind of tapping the brakes a little bit. They're not really stepping on the brakes, but they're cautious of not wanting the economy to heat up too fast and inflation to take off too high. Up next, another effect of interest rates is a strong dollar. We'll talk about the effects of a strong dollar next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Another effect of interest rates going up is that it makes the American dollar more desirable on the world market. So that's what we mean by a stronger dollar. I mean, it, it's, it, it takes more foreign currency to get a dollar than it did before. This last rate increase, the dollar is almost on parity with the euro. That means one dollar for one euro. Wasn't that long ago, it took a dollar forty for one euro. Now it's down to about a dollar five, dollar four for a euro. Where this really damages, eh, damages, really hurts countries is in the emerging markets. Oddly enough, China is still classified an emerging market. So their currency got beat up big time with the dollar getting stronger. A strong dollar makes our imports cheaper. We can import stuff cheaper with a strong dollar. The problem is it makes our exports more expensive. The world trades in dollars. Everything trades in dollars. Just about every barrel of oil in the world exchanges hands in dollars. We are the world's reserve currency. I don't see that changing for a long time. It may change someday, but not for a while. So when we import stuff with a strong dollar, we we can essentially get more for our money. The trouble is it costs more of a foreign country's money to buy our stuff. So it hurts our economy from a export standpoint and it creates a situation where imports are cheaper. So there's both good and bad advantages and disadvantages to a strong dollar around the world, but it has a huge ripple effect. The other thing it does is emerging market nations like China and others have borrowed money for their country in dollar-denominated debt. As the dollar gets stronger, it costs them more to pay back their debt because their currency becomes worth less. You follow me? If it took, I don't know, 110 yen to pay back a dollar of debt, now it takes 115 yen to pay back that same dollar. So countries that have a lot of debt that is denominated in dollars have a very tough time paying back their debt. And it makes their assets, their currency, less attractive to investors because it's more expensive. Investors seeking yield are getting less yield on their currency and dollars are more expensive. Now, interest rates in Japan and and the European Union have, have stayed in negative territory for a while. And they're still produce, uh, uh, pursuing massive bond buying programs. Uh, Mario Draghi announced a while back, a couple weeks ago, 
he's going to keep buying bonds through the end of uh, 2017. I guess in April or May somewhere he's going to cut back in the quantity, but we'll see. We'll see. That may have been just a, I don't want to say a false flag, but just kind of a, a pacifying statement. And we'll see what happens in April or May. So as the interest rate rises, more money flows into our country for investment also because of the strong dollar. Strong dollar has a lot of ripple effects around the world. Now, the dollar has been rallying before this interest rate increase. It's been rallying since November 8th, the U.S. election. Investors are betting that President-elect Trump, his campaign promises, will create a more expansive fiscal policy and boost growth and possibly inflation in this country. So we've had a big ripple effect going from two rate increases in 2017 to possibly, probably, three rate increases in 2017. Now, in 2015, she said the same thing. A year ago, she she raised interest rates a quarter of a point in December and said, we're going to raise interest rates four times in 2016. And the market did not like that at all. If you remember last January, the market was down significantly. But in February, she came out and says, you know, uh, we're going to play it by year. We're not going to set it in stone. We're going to raise it four times. We're going to do a wait and see and see what happens. And the market rallied in March. But we'll see what she does next year and what the numbers come out as. Coming up next, one of my favorite people will be joining me, Veronique DeRegie from the Mercatus Center. We're going to talk to her about some of Donald Trump's policies and, of course, the Export-Import Bank. Veronique is up next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is one of my favorites, Veronique DeRegie. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She's an economic blogger at National Reviews Online, The Corner, and a featured columnist at Creators.com. She's uh, recognized as a leading expert in export, geez, can't say that, expert in the export import bank the U.S. economy, and the federal budget. Veronique, welcome back to An Economy of One. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I, I was surprised by the election, and today I would say I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, uh, about a, a Trump presidency. Uh, what's, what's your thoughts since the election, all the, the stuff coming out about the economy and, and that kind of stuff? 
Well, it's hard to figure out how this is, I mean, what kind of agenda it's going to really translate into. Um, I don't like the trade, the, the really protectionist trade agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what, uh, what happens on, on that front. Uh, but it's, we could get good tax reform. Uh, we could also get a whole lot of cronyism. Um, um, so we'll, we'll have to see. I think at the very least there's some really good things that we could get. We could get um, uh, concrete uh, steps towards um, deregulation. Um, we could get, uh, hopefully, corporate income tax reform. And uh, we could get a repeal or something that's close to a repeal of Obamacare. You know, when he uh, uh, was making a big deal about the the carrier jobs being saved in, in Indiana, um, the day that was announced, I went on air and I said, geez, I hope that they convinced the carrier people that they were going to reform taxes and regulation, and that's why they... They decided to stay, and then the next day it came out there was uh, seven million dollars yeah, yeah. involved in tax yeah. credits or something like that, and it, it just it, it just disappointed me, you know. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, and then but then the other thing is like, what is he going to do? Each time someone's going to call, he's going to he's going to call and make pressure, put pressure, and then get mm-hmm. get it strike a deal like this. I mean, the best thing he can do is implement corporate income tax reform and deregulate. And mm-hmm. and this should go a long way to keep people there. But this is still a free country. If people, companies decide that it's better for them to go somewhere else, they should still be doing it. I mean, it just, you know, it's um, yeah. what what the government. The, the only thing the government can do is create the environment that right. makes it um, more conducive to do business. To do to do to do as much business as we can in the U.S. and yeah. uh, plus the other thing is like you know this whole made in America is just in a in such a global economy it just doesn't actually quite make that much sense because it actually makes a lot of sense for companies to be buying stuff abroad right so he's mm-hmm. he's all anti um, anti uh, um, import policies, like the fact that he's his anti-trade deficit. Well, a lot of companies that are located in the United States, right? One of the ways that they stay um, they stay afloat and they 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 stay in the U.S. is because they get to shop around the world for the cheapest input that they can use in their right. business in America. So it's just. I think there's just a lot of things that haven't thought been thought through. You know, um, I, I, I've always been a strong supporter of jobs here in this country. I think that we have the, some of the most productive and best workers in the world. We, we create good quality stuff. But it, it seems like, uh, as a business owner myself and uh, a lot of clients that are in manufacturing, that kind of stuff, the regulatory burden, the tax burden uh, is a major part of the equation that makes them uncompetitive. And, you know, I, I think I've, I've read uh, several things that uh, are on the subject and, and, and stuff. That you re- If the government just got out of everybody's way and let the free market be the free market, Exactly. Then I think we'd all be happy, and everybody'd have a job that wants one. Yes, exactly. Uh, maybe not all. 
you know, maybe mm. not all, but certainly um, it will. I mean, listen, I, I mean, they they are um, free trade um, mm -hmm. and globalization. Sure, puts uh, some people's job and have uh, at risk or eliminating a bunch of jobs in the United States. And that's the thing that you do, you see, but you don't see actually all the jobs that were created through the through the process, right? And it's a right. we can't guarantee you that there's a one-on-one -on -one, that every person who loses their job will find a new job somewhere else. There's no way to promise this. But the thing that we also know is like as a country. Overall, people, either through new jobs or being consumers of cheaper prices, are actually winner of mm -hmm. a free trade system. So it's it's one of the hardest arguments to kind of like the case to make is like you can see you can see some people losing their jobs and we've seen it, right? But you mm -hmm. don't see you don't see all the benefits. And on net there's absolutely no doubt that we're all better off. Um, so then the question is, is how do you create at the state and local level a system that is so flexible that people who lose their job can, e can either find something else or decide to start their own business, decide to, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of possibility there that are actually, um, um, that the government gets in the way with with occupational licensing and with a lot of regulations and um so uh, you know it's not that everyone will win and that everyone will have a job um right. but it's actually it's 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 the best it's it's a better it's a better system than the alternative yeah well i mean you know you gotta have that creative destruction to a certain extent but you know, we've had, and you know this as well as I do, that the number of new business startups has been continually declining uh, in recent years. And part of that is is capital and, and, you know, there's a lot of variables to the equation. But certainly a big part of that is government makes it so hard to go in business and be in business with all the regulations, the Obamacare, the minimum wage all that kind of stuff and that's really where the jobs are created mm -hmm. in this country is the small business owner you know i i agree um i agree and and uh and like you you know you see you see a lot of um of um of cities that are where that had big big industries um mm -hmm. that um like i guess I'm thinking of detroit or other places like this right mm -hmm. the problem is like when when that those uh industries go away or or just you know just are not there for 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 whatever reasons um very often the rules in those local communities, the government rules, the regulation, they're they're all they're so rigid that there's a people have a hard time, you know, starting their own businesses, um, you know, coming up with new ways to innovate and to mm -hmm. find creative ways to start their own business. And and it doesn't mean Again, it doesn't mean that everyone would find, but it would increase the chance that actually sure. people would transition better to a new system. 
Yeah, yeah, so. no question. No question. Now, let's, you know, uh, throughout this last year, we've talked several times about the Export-Import Bank, and uh, we was kind of happy. I think it was in June or something. It wasn't renewed, and both of us, when we talked, we, we felt it was going to be renewed. Um, Export-Import Bank is still in business, and but they, there's some differences there. There's some changes there. Um, what, what, what's your thoughts on where the Export-Import Bank is now, and where do you think it's going to go under a, a President so, Trump? So, with, uh, so it's hard to tell. I mean, in some ways, under President Trump, he should love and hate the bank. <laughs> he should, like, because he's so pro-export, which is, I think, is a really, it's, it's a mistake. The idea that, you know, exports are, are good and imports are bad, right. is, is, I think, is a misunderstanding of, of, of the value of imports. Um, but... Um, uh, so in that sense, maybe he'll he'll be pro XM. The other thing, though, is like he is very anti-establishment, and and he sounds um, like he is anti-government uh, handout to big corporation, and that's what the Export-Import Bank is, right? I mean, it's just like 65% of its activity was geared towards 10 company, 40% to Boeing alone. Um, so. Um, so I don't know where he's going to stand, but what no. I can tell you is where what's happening with the bank right now. So you were right. So a year and a half ago, it, uh, the charter wasn't renewed, and then uh, within five or six months by the Republicans, they renewed the charter. But because the board of directors did not have enough member on its board, uh, you need three to be able to approve loans above $10 million, deals uh, above $10 million. Uh, okay. The bank has not been able to actually extend these loans. So right now it's been like operating, you know, at 10 to 15 percent of its capacity. And in September, there was a risk that they would uh, uh, pass rules to lower the number of directors that you needed on that board. It didn't happen. And this time around, I was sure it was going to uh, the same. That I was sure that the Republicans would cave again, and they didn't. Wow. So now, next big next. So the the bank is still, uh, you know, is still in a frustrated state, which makes me very happy. <laughs> um, but um, you know, it, we'll see. Like, there's yeah. a next big step, which is going to be, it's going to be uh, when they pass uh, when they pass their big budget. So we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, then. Well, and then the the latest latest deal by Boeing. Uh, is a $17 billion deal with Iran. Yes. And uh, with uh, President-elect Donald Trump's, uh, um, I don't want to say rhetoric, but discussions uh, about the nuclear deal with Iran and that kind of stuff, uh, that Boeing deal is going to be a little a little awkward around the dinner table, I think, with, for President Trump, isn't it? Yes. And, and uh, what effectively... Uh the deal is doing is that it actually make it's making it politically more difficult for him to fulfill his campaign promise um, to you know tear down that deal right, um, right because now there's just a lot of there's a lot of uh, corporate interest but maybe he'll say he doesn't care I don't know 
Well, you know, I mean, he is a master negotiator, so I, he'll find a middle ground somewhere, I, I believe. Uh, we got yeah. about a minute left together. Let, 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 give, me a, give me a quick thought on um, uh, corporate taxation. I, I, I know I've, I've read several things. Uh, Trump campaigned on lowering it down to 15%. Uh, we're starting to already see some discussion about, uh, you know, kind of a destination-based cash flow tax, which I don't quite understand. But uh, uh, what, what do you think is likely to come out of, of all this from a corporate tax standpoint? So right now there's a lot of uh, free market people, including me, that are upset with this one feature in the corporate tax proposal, uh, which otherwise is very good, is this border adjustment, this destination uh, mm-hmm. ad- adjustment, because it's very protectionist and it's very anti-competition. Uh, it's anti-tax competition. So... Um, uh, but the, the rest of the proposal is great. And so the hope is that they're going to drop this feature and they're going to move to a system. Um, I don't know that it's going to happen, but 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 uh, first, like, the corporate income tax really needs reform. We have right. the highest rate of all the OECD countries, and we have a worldwide tax system, which means that no matter where the income is earned in the, in the world, you are actually um, taxed at the very high U.S. rate on Unless you leave your money abroad, right? So the, the the side of the proposal that is good is to move to a territorial basis, which is basically the income is earned is taxed the place where it's earned, and um, and the um, and and to lower the rate quite dramatically, and that would be great. Yeah, I, I think that'll make a big difference in in uh, American businesses, uh, for sure. We've been speaking with Veronique DeRegis. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, Veronique, once again, uh, true honor to speak with you. You're one of my favorite uh, people to talk to. I, I hope you and your family. I hope you and your family have a great Christmas, and uh, we'll probably chat again after the first of the year. Yes. Merry Christmas, Gary. Thank you very much. Up next, another important birthday this month. I'll talk about that next. I'm Gary Rathman. This is an economy of one. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, in addition to Christmas, there's an important birthday that I wanted to point out in December. And this last week, December 15th, 1791, we celebrate the anniversary of the Bill of Rights. Now, this is interesting because when the Constitution was ratified, it was discussed and debated very heavily that we needed these 10 amendments. We needed these Bill of Rights because some of the people that were in charge of endorsing the Constitution, writing it, signing it ultimately, taking it back to their states, felt that the Constitution in and of itself did not protect all of the individual important rights. The Bill of Rights was talked about during the uh, Constitutional Convention, but in the end, it was overruled. It wasn't added to the Constitution. 
Several states, when they ratified the Constitution, ratified it on condition of adding the Bill of Rights. Now, it took a couple years to get the Bill of Rights added, and uh, uh, a lot of debate uh, around it. But to me, it, it, it illustrates two very important points. One, the Constitution does not give us any rights. The Constitution protects the rights that we have. The Founding Fathers felt that the, uh, the rights of men are a natural right, a God-given right that is not given to us by governments or anybody else. They're given to us. We have them because we exist. And this is illustrated with the Bill of Rights. This was a concern that many of these these states had, and it's really illustrated in the Tenth Amendment. Now, if you don't know the Bill of Rights, if you don't know the first ten amendments, you should become familiar. Everybody knows the First Amendment, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech. Guarantees the freedom of religion, speech, the press, assembly, and petition. Second Amendment, we all know this, the right to bear arms. Third Amendment prohibits the forced quartering of soldiers. That was a big deal uh, back then. Fourth Amendment protects people from unreasonable search and seizures. Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination. Sixth Amendment protects the right to a fair trial by jury. Seven, a right to a jury trial in civil cases. Eighth Amendment prohibits excessive bail and cruel and unusual punishment. And the Ninth Amendment emphasizes that certain rights being listed in the Constitution does not mean those are the only rights that belong to people. And the Tenth Amendment states that any powers not granted to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people. Now, these first Ten Amendments are critical to your liberty. At the time when the Constitution was ratified, I probably would have been one of the anti-federalists. I probably would have been one of the ones that would have demanded the Bill of Rights had I been in that position. These rights are critical to liberty. We need to know what they are so that we can recognize when they're being violated. We've talked about civil asset forfeiture and... Self-incrimination, Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Uh, Most uh, recently, we spent a lot of time talking about free speech in the context of uh, fake news and, and that kind of stuff. It's critical that you know what your rights are so that you can recognize when they're being violated. I can't stress that enough. But happy 225th anniversary, birthday, whatever you want to use, to the Bill of Rights. 225 years ago, it was important. I think it's more important today. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. See you next time. This is our country. 
The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 